There we go. <laughs> We're doing something unique today. I mentioned it earlier in the announcements. We're having a combined service between Clark Fork and Bonners Ferry. And in Clark Fork, they have to figure out where to start things. Um, and so that slide was intended to, to help them. Um, figure out where the beginning of the sermon was. But I want to give a, a special welcome to everybody who's watching online and especially to Clark Fork. Um, if, um, if I was there, I would have really enjoyed hearing Shannon Barnett's special music this morning. And uh, I, would, I would enjoy saying hi to Everett and Casey and all the kids and um, it'd be fun. But I'm, I'm here and I, I can't see who all's there. I do want to say uh, condolences to Manfred's uh, family for the loss of his mother, and we're praying for you. Uh, today, <clears throat> we have this unique experience, and uh, it's kind of uh, something that uh, technology is allowing, um, and to be honest, I'm nervous. I'm not usually nervous when I speak, but today I'm, I'm, I've kind of got the heart flutters, and I think it's because there's all these pieces to the service that I have no control over. And I don't know if it's working at both ends or what they're doing. And I can't, I can't solve any problems that happen in Clark Fork or even up in our sound booth right here. I, I, I don't have any control. And maybe that's a really important lesson for us to learn as we're reading and studying Daniel chapter 8. Because there's something that Jesus is doing for us. Something we have no control over and we cannot do for ourselves. The Nuremberg Trials were the first of uh, the trials of the International Military Tribunal. It was a tribunal that was set up by the Allies after World War II to, to try and sentence the worst actors in the war. They tried 24 military and political leaders from Germany, including a guy named Wilhelm Frick, who co-authored the Nuremberg Laws that were put into effect on September 15, 1935. And if you know anything about the Nuremberg Laws, they're the, the laws that made it possible for them to have a race-based society. And in, in their um, race-based society, they excluded anybody that wasn't Aryan. And that started with Jews, but then extended fairly quickly to blacks and to gypsies and to several other groups. Now, at first, those laws meant that a, a non-Aryan couldn't marry an Aryan. They couldn't have children with an Aryan. They couldn't hire an Aryan to work in their homes. Um, if you were a non-Aryan, you couldn't work in government roles. You couldn't work in a school as a teacher um, or a professor. And if you owned a business, Aryans couldn't shop at your store. So you probably lost your job one way or the other. And as you can imagine, being in this uh, displaced Situation: Many people would want to leave, and you could leave for a time anyway, but you'd have to give up 90% of anything that you owned as a tax in order to leave Germany. And after a while, they even restricted that, so you couldn't leave. And so they had these displaced people that uh, they couldn't afford to live in their homes. They didn't have jobs, and, and so they were nice enough to put them in concentration camps, after which they killed them. These were the Nuremberg Laws. Wilhelm, Wilhelm Frick needed to be tried. And when you look, us looking back at what happened, it's really easy for us to say that stuff was just atrocities, horrible things that were happening. And, and there needed to be a trial and there needed to be a, some resolution. But when you think about this, when something bad happens, when some um, awful atrocity happens, it, it, there needs to be justice, right? And trials are meant to expo expose the problem and reveal what justice means. Justice isn't just a blanket murder of anybody who does something wrong. That's, that's not what justice means. Justice requires a, a reasonable response to the, to, to the uh, problem that's at, at hand. Uh, there was a few people at this time that they were setting up the, um, the Nuremberg um, trials. Uh, one of them was Joseph Stalin, the other one Franklin D. Roosevelt. They both um, signed on to this idea, the suggestion that they just take the, the top 50,000 uh, military leaders and officers in the, the German army and put them to death. 
I have an easy solution, right? Just 50,000, just get it done with. But, but justice doesn't just demand everybody dies. Justice needs a, a trial. It needs an exp- exploration of the problem and uh, an understanding of what the reasonable solution would be. This issue of justice in earth's history is an important focus. When you, whenever you're looking at apocalyptic prophecy, like we looked at last week or last uh, time I preached, which was like four weeks ago, um, by the way, I, I, I am totally recovered from COVID for the second time. <clears throat> and this morning singing, I, I was getting winded. I, I think I, I need to do some lung exercises or something, get back that lung capacity. Anyway, so um, when we studied Daniel 7, we, we started exploring apocalyptic prophecy. And there's some interesting stuff about apocalyptic prophecy. It's, it's strange. It's signs and symbols and weird things. And, and it's time-based. There's something about time in apocalyptic prophecy. It moves from t- the time of the prophet usually to the very end of time uh, when the problem of sin is, is solved. Right. So apocalyptic prophecy has to do primarily with justice responding to the problems that this earth and sin have brought. And um, if we, just to do a real, real quick review, since it's been a few weeks since we did Daniel 7. Daniel 7 had this timeline that matched Daniel 2, right? There's this kingdom and then this kingdom and then this kingdom, right? And you had Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then we came to, the, to Rome, and it was this terrible beast. And, and we found that, um, that there was these ten horns that came up, and one horn... The Bible called it a little horn, came up among those ten. And, and it's that little horn that is going to carry into Daniel 8. So some of the features that we found. We're told that the little horn would come during the time of the breakup of the Roman Empire. We're told that it would destroy three of the, the tribes, uh, those ten tribes in Western Europe. Um, and it would become powerful enough to do that. We're also told that it would blaspheme the name of God, the Most High God. Uh, We're told that it would make war with and kill the people of God, and it would make an effort to change God's time and God's law. These are some of the features or some of the characteristics of this little horn. And uh, Daniel 7.26 comes to a conclusion, and it says that in the end, this power would be subject to a judgment. And right in the middle of Daniel 7, we saw that, that thrones were set up and the court was seated. Books were opened. An investigation was being made right there in the middle of this chapter um, to, to describe the important work of the judgment against this little horn that did such atrocities. And God, he says it like this. He, he makes sure it's really clear. Vengeance is mine and recompense for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Judgment is something that God takes responsibility for. Evil is on the earth. God's going to solve the problem. Daniel 8 continues with that little horn theme, and it also continues with that main focus that judgment is going to come. Let's dive in. Daniel chapter 8. Now, the first verse, I don't have it on the screen, but the first verse in Daniel chapter 8, um, it establishes kind of our place in history. He says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, this is roughly two years after Daniel 2, because that was the first year of Belshazzar. And it's just before the Medes and the Persians come and take Babylon. So this is kind of the timing in Daniel's life when this vision happens. And he begins by saying this. Now, I should say this. Uh, It's probably because the Medes and Persians are about to take over that Daniel 8 doesn't mention Babylon at all. Uh, We'll start in verse 2. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there were standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Notice that it has this ram. In Daniel 7, we saw beasts, but uh, they were like lion and bear and leopard and this terrible beast, whatever that is. But now in Daniel 8, we have a specific category, a category change of beasts. They're still animals, but now we're, we're talking about um, clean animals, animals that could have been taken to the sanctuary as a sacrifice. 
And, and that's really important to underscore when we're looking at apocalyptic prophecy. When you see things that look like they relate to the sanctuary, I guarantee you they do. Because apocalyptic prophecy is about dealing with sin. And the sanctuary is all about dealing with sin. And they tie together really closely. So, a ram. And it says that I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. Now, Daniel 8.20, if you just scan over there, Daniel 8.20 says that we don't have to guess what this ram represents. The ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. The Bible makes it clear. We don't have to guess what it is. Media and Persia, the ram represents this nation that comes after Babylon. Interestingly, it, it's comparable to Daniel 2. The second thing in, in Daniel 2 was this chest and arms of silver. And the Bible tells us it's the kings of Media and Persia that take over after Babylon. And then Daniel 7 has the bear that's raised up on one side, kind of like the horns on this one that's raised up on one side. So there's lots of comparisons, lots of similarities. But this one adds something that I want you to pay attention to. It adds direction. Direction will become really important in just a minute, but just notice that it, it, it's pushing, it's moving somewhere. We're talking about military movement, and we're talking about movement across the globe, westward and northward and southward. What's missing? East. Why, why does it not say the east? Because the Ram, the Medes and the Persians, come from the east. Okay, so direction is important. Uh, but we've got to remember who's writing. This guy is Daniel, and Daniel is a Jew. He's in Babylon, he's in Shushan, but that's not, it's not where he thinks about the center of the world. Where's the center of the world for a Jew? doesn't matter where they are. Daniel will pray towards Jerusalem. We found that in Daniel chapter 6. When he was thrown in the lion's den, he was praying from looking out his window towards Jerusalem. It's really important Jerusalem is the center of his world. And so when you see pushing westward and northward and southward and coming from the east, you're always needing to think about from the perspective of Jerusalem. South of Jerusalem, north of Jerusalem, west of Jerusalem. Let's keep reading. Um, There's another, another beast that comes. And I saw, and as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. Notice we have... Uh, another clean animal, another animal that could have been sacrificed in in the uh, sanctuary, and another direction. This one isn't coming from the east, going to the west. It's coming from the west. And it's across the whole earth without touching the ground, and, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacking the ram, and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore, the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. This new power is also no mystery. Just look at Daniel 8.21. And the angel interprets the vision. So we don't have to guess. What's, uh, what's this goat represent? It, it represents the kingdom of Greece. And he, and he points out that the great horn between his eyes is the, the first king. Who's the first great king of the Macedonian Empire, the Greek Empire? Alexander the Great. It's, uh, it's right there in history, not hard to find. Any encyclopedia would tell you that Alexander was the first king of the Greek empire. And he did some amazing things and did them quickly, and we've talked about it before. Um, so uh, this parallels again, Daniel chapter 2, the, the belly and thighs of brass, and the, the leopard with four heads. Here we have four horns. Um, so we've got a lot of parallels and, and then it adds this new dimension, direction from the West. Now, there's a, a, a phrase right at the end of this passage that I want you to pay attention to. I put it in black on the screen if you're seeing that. It says, the four winds of heaven. Just the last phrase there. There's two, two things that we need to, to point out. One, it says the four notable ones or the four notable horns, but, um, but then the four winds of heaven. Whenever the Bible talks about winds, 
it's using a word that it could also translate it as, as spirit. And the word ruach, it, it means like power, right? It's the thing, it re- literally means throat. It's the thing through which you provide power to your body. You eat, and, and that, that energy and, and stuff goes through your throat. It's also where you have influence, because out of your throat comes words and stuff, right? So the, the idea of spirit or wind, or it, it has this context of life and power and energy and, and stuff like that. So Holy Spirit, that's the holy wind, holy ruach, or, or um, any, any wind that you see in the Old Testament is this word ruach. But when it connects to this four winds, the Bible is always describing political power or movement, the power in movement, and specifically it's dealing with direction. Like, for instance, Jeremiah 49, 36, God says that he'll bring the four winds from the four quarters of heaven and on them, uh, he'll bring them on the, the Israelites and scatter them around the earth. And in Matthew 24, 34, Jesus talks about angels gathering the saints from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the other. So we're talking about direction and movement. And in Revelation 7, 1, angels are posted to keep the winds at bay, the political winds. This was winds of the earth. So the military power and the might of, of different nations, they keep those things at bay until the sealing of God's people. So the four winds are like, well, the easiest way to describe it is the four directions on a map. When you look at a map, you've got north and south and east and west. And every time that we've talked about direction and movement in these first two um, beasts, we've got these words from the west to the to the west, to the north, to the south. We've got these four directions. So the four winds are the four directions. This is important because in Daniel 8 9, we get a new character. We've got a ram, we've got a goat, and now we've got not another beast, but just a horn. And it says, and out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Notice we've got direction again. Um, and it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, while we've got this on the screen, I want, you to ask, I want to ask you a question. Where does this kingdom, this power, come from? If it goes to the south, to the east, where does it come from? In this case, it would need to come from the west, from the west to the east to the south, right? So then it it keeps going on, and it says, he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth to the ground, and he did all this, and he prospered. Now, a lot of people would like to make a connection between the, um, this vision uh, about the little horn and a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, and, and see, the thing is, this verse in, in uh, Daniel 8 describes some atrocities that seem to be relating to the sanctuary, casting the sacrifice down, and... and um, this guy, Antiochus Epiphanes, he ruled the Seleucid Empire, and that doesn't, probably doesn't matter to you where that is, but when Alexander the Great was killed or died, he didn't have an heir, and so his four generals took over, and one took the north, and one took the south, one took the west, and, and another took the east, and the guy who took the east is a guy named Seleucid. Or salute, yeah, anyway, Seleucid. So the empire that he ended up ruling over, which kind of spread and grew bigger than the other parts of the Greek empire, um, he, his was called the Seleucid Empire, and he, he ruled from Seleucia. And guess where Seleucia is? It's in Iraq. Is Iraq west or east of Jerusalem? Just imagine geography in your head. If you're not big into maps, it's east, yes east of Jerusalem. So when this text says that, that the little horn moves to the east and implies that it's from the west, uh, we can pretty much rule out just from direction Alexander, or, um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, this Seleucid king. Uh, 
admittedly, the guy did bad things. He lived just, uh, just shy of 200 years before Jesus, and he did some horrible things. Um, if you've heard of the Maccabees, the Maccabees were around the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, and there was big wars between um, the, the, the Greeks and, uh, and, and the people of God. There's problems, and they, they shut down the temple for a little while, and you know, right? they're, they're, it can make sense that it applies to this. But just from the direction, we know that it doesn't. But secondly, it says in Daniel 8, 9, that it came out of one of them, right? Where does this come from? Um, it comes out of one of them. I'm just going to back up on the screen so that you can see this. Out of one of them. Out of one of what? Well, look in your Bible in verse 8, and you've got two options in verse 8. Option one is that it came out of one of the four horns, and option number two is it came out of the winds, the one of the four winds. Um, let me see if I can illustrate something. Um, we all know Mary had a little lamb. lamb. Okay, let's change that. Mary had a little son, okay? And his hair was white as snow. Now, I, I did that on purpose because uh, gender has a big it plays a big part in how we understand the meaning of a, of a sentence. So whose hair is white as snow? Is it, is it Mary's or Mary's son? Mary had a little son. His hair was white as snow. And we know this because Mary is feminine and son is masculine. And when you get the, the, the uh, pronoun there, his, that's masculine. So we know it can't relate to Mary. It's not Mary's hair. Can't be, could never be interpreted as Mary's hair. It's the son's hair who's white as wool, as snow. The same is true in Hebrew. Um, It has all kinds of interesting uh, feminine, masculine, right? Every word basically has a gender. And if you know any other language besides English, that makes sense to you. And if you only know English, we have no idea what that means. Um, But in Hebrew, every word has a gender. And and when you look at that phrase in uh, Daniel 8.8, when it says there's these four horns and then four winds, the four horns are masculine, The four winds are feminine. And when it says in in verse 9, out of one of them, them is feminine. Which does it apply to? It applies to the winds, the directions of the compass, right? Out of one of the directions of the compass. So it can't apply to the horns. So the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't even begin to qualify as the the proper interpretation of the little horn in Daniel chapter 8. Now, that's important because what we're talking about isn't about uh, a king coming and conquering Jerusalem. What we're talking about is the judgment that God brings on that king. And it is, it's not just judgment on this king. It's not just judgment on this little horn power. It's a judgment that impacts my life and your life. And honestly, if, if Antiochus Epiphanes fulfilled this prophecy, we can just ignore it. It wouldn't make any difference for my life or yours. We could take Daniel, put it on a shelf, and say, those were nice stories, and move on. But there's something more here than Antiochus Epiphanes. There's something deeper. Let's keep reading, and and, and we need to to jump to verses 24 and 25, because in the interpretation of this vision, the, the angel gives some details about this little horn. And before, you, before we read that, uh, I want to point out something from Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, you have the progression, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you have the 10 broken up kingdoms of Rome, the 10 tribes, and then you have a little horn power. But in Daniel 8, you only get the little horn. But in Daniel 7, there's a progression. Rome, the, the terrible beast, conquers and crushes and breaks in pieces and in Daniel 8, you have something similar happening, crushing and breaking and conquering. But then the little horn that comes up in Daniel 7 changes its focus, and it becomes blasphemous and speaking pompous words against the Most High God. And we change from military horizontal expansion to vertical spiritual uh, battle between this power and God. And the same thing happens in Daniel 8. Look at verse 24 and 25. 
He, that's the little horn, even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away. So it begins with this conquering and military expansion and moving south and east and towards the glorious land. But, but then he rises, not from a horizontal military expansion, but into a, a religious battle between him and the prince of hosts, who is none other than Jesus himself. And it says, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And because of the transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and to cast truth to the, to the ground, and he did all this and prospered. I think I backed up a little too far. Here we go. His power shall be mighty. This is verse 24. I'm sorry. Um, his power shall be mighty, but not on his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty... And then here's the change. And also the holy people, that's God's people. So he's conquering, he's destroying, but then the transition happens and he he goes to this vertical battle between God and his people. And then there's this word, through his cunning, keep that word in your mind. And then the next one, his, um, his power shall be mighty. He shall cause deceit. So cunning and deceit. He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise again against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. So the progression in Daniel 7, there's Rome, and then there's the ten horns, and then there's the little horn. And the little horn does battle against God. And in Daniel 8, the same progression. There's this horn that becomes great and expands militarily, but then it begins to make war with God. And in Daniel 7, there's a judgment on that horn, and in Daniel 8, it says that that little horn would be broken. And how? Are you and I going to rise up and break that little horn? No, it says not by human means. Now, <clears throat> there's, a, there's a reason, I think, that God has included this change of direction. Not just horizontal, but vertical. It's because the problem is no longer between me and somebody else. The problem is between this power and God. And so the solution has to be a divine heavenly solution. This power is reaching up to mess with God. God's going to have to deal with the problem himself. The next two verses in Daniel 8 point out what this judgment is. And like any, uh, this is verses 13 and 14, the next two in, in our progression from the beginning. Um, and and this, is, this is really uh, typical Hebrew writing. Uh, the author is going to put the most important stuff right in the middle. And he does right here in verses 14, 13 and 14. He says, then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, how long? Are we talking about direction anymore? What are we talking about now? Time. Now, Daniel 7, it moved from one kingdom to another. And, and it didn't talk about time. I mean, it implied the progression of time, but it didn't talk about time until the little horn was doing bad things. And it says that it's going to do these bad things against God's saints for 1,260 years, a time, a times, and a half a time. I won't get into all the details about that, but a time is a year, a year is 360 days in the Jewish calendar, so that's 1,260 days, and a day is a year in prophecy, so that's 1,260 years. So that, we'll, we'll come back to that later. Um, and, and it's time connected with this punishment, or this uh, how long can it rule until the judgment. Time. And now, in Daniel 8, we've got the same problem, and the question is, how long is it going to happen? And it says, here's the time. From some time in history until 2,300 years later, a day is a year, then judgment would come. But, but it doesn't say judgment. It, it says the sanctuary would be cleansed. He says, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Time. I was watching a sermon on, Dan, uh, on the subject of Daniel chapter 8. I just wanted to get a sense of what other pastors and teachers uh, teach on the subject. And, and he's going through and it's, you know, progressing just as, um, basically, as I've shared the things with you, Medo-Persia, Greece. And, and then he, he says, out of Greece comes this Seleucid king, Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, I, I expected that. And, and then when he gets to this verse... 2,300 days. Your translation might say evenings and mornings. 
he, he said, um, here's what we don't want to do. Those Seventh-day Adventists. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's interesting. What's he going to tell me? And he, he says, uh, William Miller, back in the day, he, he predicted that Jesus would come in 1844. And he didn't. And it was a great disappointment. And, and the Seventh-day Adventists, say, they say things, you know, it wasn't Jesus coming. But, but here's the point. Whenever you look at this time, obviously people have gotten it wrong and it doesn't really matter. That's what he said. It doesn't matter. Let's just move on. And I wanted to shout to YouTube, which doesn't work, by the way. I wanted to shout out, but Mr. Preacher, the angel asked how long. Don't you think the answer is important? It's not just Daniel asking. God has to insert into the vision the question to make sure there's no doubt that the answer is important. How long will this vision be? And so it says 2,300 days. If you look at the progression of history, I've mentioned it in Daniel 7, and I'll say it, I'll, say, I'll, I'll kind of re- rephrase it today. Rome breaks up into 10 tribes, and the one horn that becomes a religious political power is the papal Roman church. And, and the, the, the papacy ends up taking over the empire of Rome and whatever it wanted politically and, and, and militarily it got because it controlled the conscience of all of Europe. And, and when you look at, at what's happening here, uh, Daniel 8 starts out asking this question, how long would the vision be? How long would this daily be trampled? And, and the question, yours probably says the continual offering or the daily sacrifice, but the Hebrew word there is just simply daily or continual. It could be either one. And if you think that this is Antiochus Epiphanes and what you're trying to figure out is when was the, the, the sacrifice at the temple um, stopped? And it's true for about a couple years or so, Antiochus Epiphanes um, refused to allow the Jews to do sacrifices in the temple. Um, and so some might say, well, that, that has a comparison. But we've already pointed out that doesn't apply. Antiochus Epiphanes, he doesn't even fit the most basic requirement. Where does this come from? Um, and, and so we have to look elsewhere. And when we track the progression from Rome to the, the, the ten horns and this little horn power, the, the papacy, we start to see what's really going on. Because see, what, when we're talking about the sanctuary, what's continual? What's the daily? What happens on a daily basis in the sanctuary? There is a morning and evening sacrifice, right? But, but does your translation say 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices? Or does it say 2,300 evenings and mornings or 2,300 days? When, when we read that, we're intended to look back. The Hebrew literally says evenings and mornings. And we're intended to look back at Genesis and realize this is talking about days. Just like Genesis had an evening and a morning was the first day. An evening and a morning was the second day. We're not talking about sacrifices. We're talking about a time period, 2,300 days. And during that time, daily would be obscured. It would be trampled on. The sanctuary would be trampled on. So what's the daily? Are they the the sacrifices? Yes. Yes, that's part of it. But what what else happens? On a daily basis, the priest goes into the uh, the holy place and he fills the, um, the, the candlesticks. And Jesus says of himself, I am the light of the world. And then he points to his disciples and he says, you are the light of the world. And, and we, we have this, um, the, this addition, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That's from Peter. There, there's something about our personal witness that is a light. And, uh, and the papacy, they were content to snuff out the light of personal witness and replace it with lazy monks begging for money in exchange for some magical um, spiritual blessing. They, they even added on to it sometime later that you could buy your way out of a sin or buy your way out of hell or buy your, 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 your loved one's way out of hell. So, so they replace personal witness with some greedy monetary thing through which they built St. Peter's Basilica and many other things. 
And if you look at the, the priest going into that sanctuary, one of the things they did on a regular basis, a continual basis, is they replaced the, uh, the, the table of showbread, the bread on that table of showbread. And that bread, they were supposed to eat it every Sabbath and replace it. And it was going to be renewed every single week. Um, so continually being renewed. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And when, when you look at the uh, experience of, of the Christian church under the papacy's control, they chained Bibles, the bread of life, the way that we stay abiding in the vine. They chained them to pulpits. They refused to allow them to be translated into, other, um, into, into the common language so that people could read them. They even kept the, the services, the worship services in Latin. And most people, even in their time, didn't speak Latin, much less today. So it, it kept people from feeding on the bread of life and kept them dependent on ceremonies and, and systems made by men. And, and then another thing that happened, the uh, priests would go into the holy place and on a regular basis, several times a day, they would go before the altar of incense. Now they would pray before the altar of incense, but they would also bring the blood of the sacrifice before the altar of incense. And this becomes exchanged for systems in the church. The laver was a, um, a part of that uh, as well. It was supposed to represent baptism and the, the papal church makes it into some sprinkling thing. Baptism by, the, by water, immersion in water and a new birth becomes just this sprinkling with magic water, with holy water. And, and then it says that he, it would rise up against the prince of hosts, against Jesus himself. And when you look at the papacy, the Pope is variously called by his prelates and by, by um, things that describe who the Pope is as um, our shepherd, our great physician. Do those things sound like names for Jesus? How about this one? Our Lord God, the Pope. There is no obscuring the idea the Catholic Church says that the Pope stands in the place of God on earth and can do anything they want with the Bible, changing it as they will. And it did indeed, as we studied in Daniel 7. Repeatedly in prophecy, we find this 2,300 days connected to years. And this is an important thing because how long will this happen is the question the angel is asking. And I just want to support this through scripture. Ezekiel chapter 4, 4 through 6 describes Ezekiel and, and, and this particular prophecy where Ezekiel has to lay on his side. 390 days for Israel and another 40 days for Judah. And it says that each uh, day represented a year of the punishment for Israel's or Judah's rebellion. In uh, Numbers 14, 33, and 34, God, he gives Israel a judgment. And remember, apocalyptic prophecy is dealing with judgment, right? Responding to sin. And, and so we've got judgment in Numbers. They, they rebel against God, and their spies, they complain and whatnot, and the people complain and say, we shouldn't go in, and they disobey God. And so God says, fine, you can wander in the wilderness 40 years, a day, or year for every day that the spies were scouting out the land. And then if you look in, uh, in, in several other places, you'll find this idea a day for a year. Um, so when the angel says this 2,300 days, he's talking about years. And, and you understand that this has to be years because as soon as you read Daniel 9, the vision of Daniel 8 doesn't end. It just kind of pauses. And Daniel has some things going on. A change of empires goes on. And, uh, and in the first year of Darius, he's pondering this and praying. And he has this prayer of lament. And he's like, Lord, he says he's studying Jeremiah. And he's studying Jeremiah about the 70 years that, ba that Israel would be in Babylon. And he's, he's pleading with God, Lord, please be merciful to us. And, and he, I mean, if this was just a 2,300 days, literal days, we'd be talking about six years. If it was morning and evening sacrifices, two of them happen every day. So that would be half that time, what, 1,100 and something years, or days, so three years. 
three, six years, that's not a big deal. Add three to, to 70 or six to 70, and it's, it's like shrug your shoulders. Who cares? Well, Lord, it's a little bit longer, but we'll handle it. But when you add 2,300 years to 70, that got Daniel concerned. And so he prays, Lord, be merciful to us. We know we've sinned, but please, out of your great goodness, be merciful to us. We'll talk more about that in the next sermon that I'm calling Cut Off. We'll get there another time. But this, this, um, this uh, phrase, it says, how long? And it says 2,300 days or years prophetically then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What does that word mean? And what's it got to do with you and me? We're going to kind of wrap up with this idea. The word in Hebrew it's, is nitzdak. I can't speak Hebrew, so I'm sure I got it wrong. If you know it better than me, that's fine. Tell me about it later. Um, but nitzdak, it means more than just cleansed. It means cleansed, or you might read in your translation, restored or vindicated. And to understand what exactly this means, we need to understand what this little horn is doing. And we've already talked about it. Um, First, it casts the daily, the continual services of the sanctuary that have to do with the salvation of mankind. It casts them to the ground and keeps people from understanding the character of God. And so one of the things that the cleansing needs to do, the, the, the judgment needs to accomplish, is it needs to bring that back to restore the sanctuary and the truth that the Bible has in the sanctuary. So at the end of this 2,300 days, the sanctuary would be restored, brought back to its um, true meaning and understanding. Uh, secondly, the transgressions needed to be cleansed from the sanctuary. Everything that was defiled that, that defiled the worship of God. Now, is that the little horn? Because the little horn is trampling on the worship of God? Yes. But is it possible that that's you and me too? Is there a cleansing that needs to happen for you and me? Yes. And, and third, the sanctuary, the host, that's the people of God, and God himself were being trampled on through pompous, blasphemous, haughty words, through conceit and, and, and deceit. Um, they, they were... Um, messed with and, and, and trampled on. And of course, the people of God are actually killed. Um, if you wanted to translate a Bible into any other language but Latin, you'd get in trouble with the church. You might be burned. Uh, you might be drowned. And so something had to happen. And you know what they needed? They needed vindication. See, all three of these words for nitzdak, apply. The sanctuary needs to be restored. Uh, the, the transgression needs to be cleansed. And, and it also needs, God needs to be vindicated. All right, so now we know the daily refers to regular services in the temple. We know that uh, the 2300 days represent years and uh, after which there's going to be a judgment. And we know that the cleansing of the sanctuary, that judgment describes all the things that needed to happen to respond to the problems the little horn brought. And remember, apocalyptic prophecy is chiefly concerned with what's going on in God's plan of salvation, dealing with sin. And all of that is beautifully illustrated in the sanctuary. And so understanding the sanctuary and how it connects to prophecy is important. The cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8, the judgment described in Daniel 7, are illustrating are illustrated, I should say, in a service that happened every year in the sanctuary. Every year on what the, the Bible calls the Day of Atonement, the sanctuary would be cleansed. And, and every year, something would happen that the Israelites couldn't do a thing about. I mean, they were told to prepare their hearts, but, but when the actual thing happened, the priest did all the work. And he went into a place that they couldn't see. That's important because when we talk about the fulfillment of the 2300-day prophecy, what happens in the cleansing of the sanctuary in this prophetic timeline, we need to recognize that what's going on is being done by the high priest. Not by you and me, but by the high priest. And it's happening in a place we can't see, and so we, by faith, recognize that it's going on. 
The pastor's sermon that I watched was right in one sense. William Miller did get it wrong. Jesus wasn't coming literally and physically. He wasn't coming with fire to to cleanse the earth with judgment. Instead, he was going into heaven to deal with sin. I, I use that phrase, deal with sin, very specifically because we found it in Daniel cha- or Hebrews chapter 9. Uh, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Look at Daniel 7.22. If, if you're in Daniel 8, just flip back. 7.22. It says that judgment was made in favor of the saints. You see, judgment happens for our benefit. But you might recognize, if we're talking about something like the Nuremberg trials, it's not just the terrible atrocities of of maybe the papacy in the Dark Ages or whatever, or any uh, group of people who trample on the name of God. It's also you and me. In, In the Nuremberg trials, there were a lot of people that were killed, sentenced to death. There were a few people that were sentenced to long years in prison, and there were three that were acquitted. Three that were acquitted. We'll come back to that. You and I, we're not guiltless. If we come up, if our name comes up in a trial, guilty is the verdict that we can expect. But he says that he appears in the presence of God on our behalf, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place. How often? Every year. Did did you know that the only place that goats and rams are mentioned together in sacrifice is on the Day of Atonement? Once a year, the high priest would enter the holy place with blood not his own. Uh, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Every every year, a new sacrifice, right? Um, But as it is, Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Notice there's judgment and there's time. When is the time here in Hebrews 9? At the end of the age. We're not talking about Antiochus Epiphanes. We're talking about the time just before Jesus returned. At the end of the age, to put away sin, to deal with sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. When Jesus comes the second time, is he dealing with sin? No, he's already dealt with sin. The judgment is already done. That's really important for us to grasp. Christ, the Son of Man, the Prince of Hosts, enters into the holy place of heaven. Not made by human hands, not Moses' hands, not Solomon's hands, not Herod's hands, not the papacy's hands. No no, uh, sanctuary on earth. We're talking about a heavenly sanctuary. And he enters into this heavenly sanctuary to provide a solution, not by human means, but by his own blood. His own sacrifice he takes into heaven. The solution to both the problem of the little horn and to the issues of your heart and mine is not a temple made with hands. But it's the essential work that Christ is doing in heaven. Jesus appears before God on our behalf. Remember, it's for our benefit. A judgment is made in our favor. It's at the end of the age, just before his second coming. And And he bears my sins and yours in this heavenly judgment. And we can can, uh, decide that we don't want God to bear our sins. That's certainly possible. Revelation 18. Revelation follows Daniel a lot. A lot of similar signs and symbols. And the little horn in Daniel is referred to as Babylon in Revelation. And in Daniel 18 too, the angel is talking to John and he says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Judgment has happened. Just a few chapters before, in fact, it says, judgment is come. Fear God and worship him for the hour of his judgment has come. The time of his judgment has come. And by this time in Revelation 18, it's already happened. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit. This is not a good situation. And he's going to plead with us. He's going to invite us 
to do something. And I'd like to close with this invitation. Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This isn't just a call to leave the papacy. This is a call to leave the self-appointed solutions in our lives. We, we try to solve our problems on our own without God. And, and I just want to say, there's nothing you can do. Just like me trying to fix some technical problem in Clark Fork while I'm preaching right now. It wouldn't work. Hopefully it's working. But if, it, if it's not working, I can't change that, can I? And you can't change your situation. Just like the Nuremberg trials. There was a, a particular man that was acquitted. His name was Hans Fritsch. I probably said that wrong. <laughs> Maybe you can correct me if you know German later. Hans was the head of the German radio propaganda machine. And for whatever reason, when the trial came in, the, in Nuremberg, he was acquitted. Was he guilty? Absolutely. But he wasn't sentenced to death and he wasn't sentenced to prison. He was acquitted. And that's kind of the place that you and I dwell. We have sin. We have problems. We are not guiltless. And when our name comes up in trial, guilty is the only reasonable verdict. Our only solution is to be acquitted. This uh, particular guy, Hans, um, he was acquitted, but uh, a lot of people argued that it was political. And so a few years later, the uh, German denazification court called him up to uh, be reviewed again. He was tried a second time and he was put in prison. That's not going to happen after Jesus' trial in heaven. After the judgment in heaven, when you and I are acquitted, we're acquitted because Jesus applies his own blood to our account and his righteousness covers our sins. And so when, uh, when it's all said and done, no angel in heaven, no demon on earth, no person will be able to look at you and say, that was political. No, it wasn't political. It was for love of you that Jesus gave his life. And there will be no court that's able to stand in the place of Jesus' court that said, my blood covers their sin. The only question is, do you want to accept his invitation for forgiveness? Do you want to accept his blood, his righteousness to cover you? What will you do with Jesus' judgment?